0: In early May of 2010, it started to rain, and we saw rain in Nashville and really in Middle Tennessee that was unprecedented. I believe we had 22 to 24 inches of rain in around 36 hours.
1: That was Lori Shinton, president and CEO of Hands On Nashville. Lori's organization is a volunteer resource center for the city, connecting volunteers to more than 150 partner organizations across Nashville. Usually that means Lori is directing volunteer efforts to address homelessness and gentrification, but in other times, as with the 2010 Tennessee floods, hands-on Nashville battles natural disasters as well. This is The Nonprofit Experience, a podcast that presents candid conversations about the human experience of nonprofit work, and I'm your host, Sandy Sear. Disaster relief isn't nearly as hard a target to hit as disaster recovery. We paired Lori with Regine Webster to talk about why that is and to discuss the challenges facing disaster recovery nonprofits, managing in-kind donations, wrangling volunteers, and keeping donors interested for the long haul. Regine, in addition to serving as Chair-elect for Hands on Nashville, is also the Vice President and Founding Executive Director for the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. CDP helps donors make a greater impact around disaster relief and recovery. In just a moment, we'll return to Lori and then hear from Regine.
0: And for most people, I think until you knew that something happened, it was just a really rainy day and um, was like, OK, when's the rain going to stop? I live out on, on, in the country on a hill. And so I didn't notice any flooding at, at my place. But all of a sudden, by day two, water was everywhere. It had creeped out of the Cumberland River. And um, I believe they called it the thousand year event. I don't believe that for a minute. Um, that it's going to be a thousand years before we have another event like that. But that's how devastating it was. There wasn't, like, you can't meet anybody that lived here, or even in Middle Tennessee, honestly, beyond Nashville, that doesn't have a personal, this is how I was impacted by the flood
2: story. Oh, no, can I tell you mine? Sure. So my story is, uh, I live in one of the downtown neighborhoods, and we're all on limestone in Mm -hmm. in my neighborhood. So... We always have a wet basement, but dang, our basement was really wet at that time. And our sump pump was working over time and our dehumidifier was like doing its little, you know, level best to dehumidify the house. And I had at that time, I had a two year old and like a four and a half year old. And so it, w- it was that time where you're you're just kind of, you know, cabin fever sets in pretty darn easily at that time. And then meanwhile, for my work, I um, had a presentation that I was going to be giving that Monday or Tuesday. Anyway, so I remember getting on the flight, fly, and the flight pattern took us over the Cumberland and took us over oh, Opryland.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: And I remember looking out, and there were no – it's – it's right, Opryland Opry is not only the, a huge Mills outlet mall, but it's also, uh, I think, the largest – hotel we have in town, right? Something I think like that. so. Okay. And certainly at that time it was. So, right. And you, so the huge parking lots, right? Like vast acreage of parking lots. And they were all like 10 feet underwater. So you couldn't see, there were no cars and you couldn't see any of the parking lot lines. You could just see this kind of brownness. Yep. And I remember looking out the window and having this like, oh my gosh, moment when I realized that it was just completely flooded, completely decimated. And only later to find out that all of, again, all of that outlet mall ended up at under like eight to 10 feet mm-hmm. of water. So mm-hmm. crazy. Let's talk about disaster a little bit because I was, I was with somebody
0: today and we were talking about hands on Nashville's history. So it's about 26 years old and about three times we've had, we've run into financial issues over the years. Interestingly enough, Two of the three times a disaster that has occurred has lifted hands-on Nashville out of that financial difficulty. So the first one was when Katrina happened mm-hmm. and hands-on Nashville was engaged to move folks, you know, to help displace folks from Katrina. The second one, we were in a bit of trouble right before the flood of 2010 in Nashville and that lifted us out. And then in 20. 15, the end of 2015, 2016 was when we, you know, first really started to meet and working together. This has been the only time that a disaster has not lifted the agency out of a financial hole.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting because in in a way, my understanding of the 2010 flooding and its relationship with Hands on Nashville is that it not only lifted the organization out of the hole, but it also set it self up on in, in a bit of a precarious position. And that precarious position is something that I've in my role seen happen before. Because what happens is organizations like Han that are really vital, important social service kind of infrastructure, health and human service agency for a community, community. in times of disaster, they, they get called to do more. And they have to do more because not doing more is, in many respects, not an option. And funding comes in initially to support that more and that expansion of services. I mean, I, it would be so interesting, Lori, if we had the numbers of how many volunteers were going out in kind of those six months following the flooding. Um, I, I have them. Oh, you do? Okay, hold on. Yeah. Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but what happens, and again, what I've seen in the past is that is it organizations don't have some natural way to shrink back down to, I don't know if status quo is the right way to talk about it, but, you know, situation as usual. And and I think that I, I saw that in my role as a board member happen with Hands on Nashville that, you know, programs had expanded, staff had expanded, and the funding was just not there to
1: right.
2: to meet that.
0: that. That was the, like... I would call that the single failure of Hanzo Nashville after the, the response to the flood was that we didn't scale back. And I think for anybody that any organization that works in the disaster field that's called to expand really quickly, being able to have a way to come back to whatever normal is, is really important or you do end up in trouble. Between the flood, which was May 3rd, in December of that year, we had 22,000 individuals donate more than 91,000 hours to flood recovery. That's nearly 11 years of time. That's amazing. It's a, right. It's a lot of people and a lot of time that converges really quickly in a unique way around a disaster than any other yeah. like event or thing that happens in day-to-day life. Because that's obviously, we, this is what we might do.
2: In a year now, you know. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Instead of, you know, what's so interesting, though, too, is that in the world that that I work in, which really, is, I don't, I, I physically work in Nashville, but my work doesn't really touch Nashville. Right. But when people in the domestic disaster response space talk about the Nashville flood recovery, they they consider it a successful recovery because all of the nonprofit organizations that came into town – and all the nonprofit organizations that were already in town, and then all the, you know, all the citizens, all the volunteers worked together to make it so. And everything from the Association of Floodplain Managers helping lead and manage the conversations around the buyouts to what all of the large household name nonprofits, as well as what Hands On Nashville did, it's it really is considered a success. So it's uh, another interesting thing is that. Right now, the Center for Disaster Philanthropy has a number of funds, right? So we have then been a grant maker to to organizations that are working on the response and recovery for hurricanes Harvey, Irma, Maria, Michael, Florence, and the California wildfires, and several other disasters. And I was just reading a couple of reports today that were like grant reports that came in today around Hurricane Harvey. So Hurricane Harvey was August of twenty seventeen. So what is that? Is that, is well, that almost?
0: It's two years. Almost two
2: years. Yeah. And report after report that I'm seeing is talking about how they're having a hard time sourcing volunteers to do what still needs to be done in terms of... Recruiting or sourcing? You, you mean recruiting. They're having a hard time getting volunteers yes, to show
0: up. to different. No, no, it's fine. I, I was confused. Yeah, Go they on. don't
2: have volunteers. They need them and they can't find them. Oh. And there's still considerable housing muck and gut that needs to be done and housing rebuild that can absolutely be done with volunteer volunteer support but they can't find the volunteers so i wonder
0: people philanthropy individually when a disaster happens people open up their pocketbooks and they give in a way that they don't like under normal circumstances i think they do that with time also and so two years removed from the event or close to it Just like the money disappears as quickly as it comes, I guess the volunteers do too, unless you can keep that need right in front of people. And I don't know how you do that successfully because a year and a half ago or two
2: years ago feels like 10 years ago. Well, and people can hardly believe that you're saying, hey, we need volunteers to do mold remediation following Hurricane Harvey. They're like, Hurricane what? What's one? uh, What? Yeah, so I I work in a co-working space, and I befriended um, a contractor, and he knew I did disaster work. And he was like, I'm thinking about going to Puerto Rico. And I was like, please don't go to Puerto Rico now. This was in 2017. I'm sure. Like, I'm like, please don't go to Puerto Rico right now. Like, that that would not be the best idea. Um, You know, I'm like, go in six months. And he's like, no, but I got to go now. I'm like, no, really, you don't have to go right now. Go later. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so... I almost want to reach out to him again and say, go to Houston. Go, you know, right. go to Gauston, Check out what's needed there because it's still pretty impressive. Okay, here's one. I have a little soapbox. It's not a little soapbox. I have a soapbox about in-kind donations. Yeah many disaster practitioners refer to in kind donations as the second disaster of having to manage multiple tonnage of diapers, of water bottles, of winter clothing in a during the summer in the south, of bikinis in you know, in the northeast in a winter storm. And and it really becomes such a very negatively detracts from Communities and NGOs, nonprofit organizations, ability to take care of the work that needs to be done and means that people spend hours upon hours of sorting and and sifting through people's donated goods. I have a profound appreciation and respect for people's generosity and how that desire to do something. Right. I mean, and we don't ever want to stop like we're not going to be able to stop people's generosity and we don't want to stop people's generosity. Um, but we talk a lot in our work about you know cash king and giving only in kind donations when they're very specifically requested by an individual family or by an individual organization. What's Hands On Nashville's experience in navigating in kind donations? And and I don't rem I don't know that I remember a lot of talk about in kind donations after our floods. So, we
0: in Nashville at that time we had a. We had a relationship and still do with the city to to very specifically mobilize volunteers. Another organization called the Community Resource Center, mm-hmm. in, are in agreement or were at the time. Um, I, I think they still are to collect donations. So the reason it doesn't come up for you is because probably because Hands On Nashville didn't do didn't it. really do that yeah. other than recruiting volunteers that the Community Resource Center needed. So I think part of what I have been researching about the flood is that, and, and the nonprofit's response here is that we, at the time, were one of the few cities that had those types of agreements with various partners or nonprofits that could mobilize in a very specific way, which I think was very beneficial. But to your point, so what we do generally with in kinds, we only, we ask, so we partner with about 150 nonprofit partners that post volunteer opportunities. And one of the times of giving for people is during Christmas or, you know, during the holiday season. And so we run an end of the year holiday guide that specifically talks about organizations that are requesting very specific list of things in-kind donations for families that are serving or things like that. So that's really the only way that we deal with Mm -hmm. um, in-kind donations, but leaning on my former experience with nonprofits, I would concur with your statement 1000%. Even in when we're very specific and say we need ABC invariably you get the entire alphabet (laughs) and the used alphabet (laughs) that literally you then have to figure out what, how do we honor the gift? How do we honor the gift? Exactly. And what, what can we do with it? It's, it's, not easy. In-kind
2: donations are hard. Yeah. Yeah. I will say on a on a productive, let me offer some sage advice, um, the Center for International Disaster Information, cid was is an organization that was created to provide thoughtful advice about in-kind donations. And one of the most amazing things that they've done is they worked with the Ad Council to put together a PSA
1: mm-hmm.
2: that shows how, how truly every dollar counts and how every dollar can be turned into water, food, clothing, shelter, um, medical care, um, new business development. And so it really, in just this very profound way, dem- articulates why cash is truly the best donation. Yep, everybody needs to go there right, and read that. One of the things the Center for Disaster Philanthropy does is we, we either conduct or we commission research. And we work every year with Candid, which is the organization that used to be Foundation Center.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And they track, they have one data set that's of the thousand largest uh, philanthropies, so foundations and charitable giving organizations over the year. And we knew we know that over 40 percent, if not upwards of almost close to 49 percent disaster giving it happens within that sort of first 60 days. What people typically refer to in quotations as relief mm-hmm. and that anything readiness or preparedness oriented is, you know, way, way down the chain in the in like fewer than 10 percent. And I, that holds true for individuals as well. We with Candid, as well as Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, we just conducted a, um, a household survey with them that showed that in 2017 and 2018, about 30 percent of households in America gave $80 a, a year to disasters. And if you extrapolate that, that means that individuals gave somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 billion with a B. Wow. I know, right? It's kind of crazy. It is. Billion with a B over those two years. Mm -hmm. And only 3% of those households did a repeat gift in 2018 to an event that happened in 2017. Does that make sense? I just said that. makes total sense. Okay. So, um, and when we looked at the motivations or when the survey looked at the motivations, it's the two highest motivations are number one, The magnitude of the disaster and the number of people affected. So for Hurricane Irma, when you're talking about six million people evacuating out of Florida, people are, you know, just hardwired to respond to that. And then number two, a connection with place. So if, for instance, you had, you know, a second home, uh, you know, in Texas or Mm -hmm. your aunt or uncle was from Puerto Rico, then, then that's the second motivation. Regrettably, we just haven't compelled either individuals or foundations and corporations to, to think about readiness out, outside of readiness of their own organization. And I really, I I mean, we work hard at that, telling that story. And, you know, certainly I won't say the word climate change here, but, but you know, when you look at... You just did. Oh, when you look at watershed and when you look at coastal land, I mean, there like how many, when you look right. at average rainfall, you know, how many more... Reasons and points of evidence do we need to show that you know that that disasters are on the rise, they're affecting more people, they're costing more dollars in in terms of you know human assets and and infrastructure like highways and bridges and whatnot um to think about preparedness and i I just I don't know how many more points of evidence people we all need. It's really
0: interesting I think it I think it goes beyond disaster preparedness. Because also prevention efforts around anything are mostly unfunded and harder. You know, I worked at another organization and we dealt with domestic violence and we began to develop a prevention program to engage men to help change the culture that allows violence to exist. And it's hard to get people to wrap around prevention in any sense of the word, because I don't know if we're hardwired just to respond after the fact or what, but it's, it's systemic. I mean, it's everywhere.
2: And I would imagine that the data exists for domestic violence as they do for disaster. Right. There's depending upon who's, you know, depending upon if it's a, you know, high development country or a low development country, it, it ranges anywhere from, you know, the whole ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Right. Right. Well, the ratio is anywhere from a one to seven ratio of a dollar in preparedness. Save seven dollars in response to all the way to like one to 18 so dollars so the data you know the evidence again we don't need more evidence or data to show that preparedness counts you know um
0: points of light has done some research and they state that for every dollar invested in volunteerism there's a six dollar return it's almost the same Same ratio that's
2: kind of cool yeah if we think just specifically about foundations, right? So not what you and I might give, right? but foundations. Foundations gave to Hurricane Harvey at a level six times greater than they gave to Hurricane Maria. Oh, so, wow. right, so something in the neighborhood, I, I don't have it in front of me, but like $320 million went for Harvey, and then a sixth of that went for Hurricane Maria. And I don't think that you can equate that to caring. I, and I don't think you can equate that to the magnitude of the disasters because hurricanes Maria and Hurricane, between Hurricane Maria, Irma and Harvey, they were like the first and the fourth and the something costliest disasters in the U.S. on record. And that's just another way of saying they were really bad disasters and affected a lot of people and a lot right. of infrastructure. So, you know, I don't know that disaster fatigue is the right way to characterize it, but it's, I think, another way to describe scarce resources. And I think, again, as we talked about volunteerism, it's just hard to get volunteers to 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 be disaster-focused two years after a particular event. I, I, I wish just, that was wrong. I just, you know, just hearing that, I would,
0: I think disaster fatigue is the right word for it. Also, people care and also organizations care. But literally, we're having more disasters. The frequency, you know, the time in between, all of it, it's happening more and more and more and more. And so people begin to get, you get, you do get a little bit numb to it, if you will. It happens
2: in everything. I mean, we also, so last year, right, okay go with me. Hurricane Michael made landfall. They actually recategorized it. It made landfall as a Category 5. Right. So the biggest, baddest storm you could possibly imagine made landfall. It hit Mexico Beach, caused massive destruction. We also wonder if the, this is truly a wonder. We, We don't have, yeah, we're not, we haven't settled on this. But if the language choices also affect that kind of numb factor that there's only so many times we can hear this is the largest storm to ever make history. You know? Right, Catastroph- catastrophic, devastating, thousand year, and we've we've wondered again among my Center for Disaster Philanthropy team if that language just doesn't, at some level, does it? Does it make it more difficult to get people's attention?
0: I think. I mean, I th- like that makes sense to me. But what I would add to that that I don't, we can't control. I don't guess is that our news cycle is literally every 30 seconds, you know, not everything is big and everybody's trying to grab your attention for everything. And it it does begin hard. It gets like, even for me, it gets hard for me to, what do I respond to? You know, what, what's really big? What's not what, you know, because everything is hitting us. Like this is the worst thing ever. Right. Right. But how do you, Discern what to respond to and in what way do you respond? Right.
2: Right. When everything's in bold and capital letters and blinking lights. But which is why when people are directly impacted by disaster,
0: they open up their pocketbooks, they come out of their houses and they say, what can I do? Which I think is also why it dissipates so quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that impact then
2: gets over with and they, you know, we just go back to our lives. Yeah. That's actually what one of my favorite questions, and the other one is, "How can I help? What can I do, and how can I help?" Right. And when I, when we go to disaster-affected communities, those are the questions people are asking. What can I do, and how can I help?
0: Do you know think, how
2: many times as a board member, when I'm
0: calling you to, like, get guidance or, or just gripe or have someone <laughs> to talk to you?
2: That now makes sense. You say, how can I help? Yeah. What can I do and how can I help? Yeah, every time. Okay. But let's be clear. I still owe you notes from a meeting that we had two weeks ago. So even though I say, what can I do to help? I, I, Sometimes you yeah, yeah. don't
1: actually Sometimes help. I don't help. Right.
0: That's true. That's fine. That's true. Thank you for having this conversation with me today. It's always, you're like a, in some ways, a little walking encyclopedia with your stats and the things that you just keep in your head. And so I appreciate that. I always gain something from our conversations Thank
2: right you. back at you Lori. i love spending time with you and i can talk disasters as the day is long and as you know i love hands on nashville and feel very connected to the mission and getting to spend an hour with you is just great
1: thanks for joining us for our very first episode of season three we've lined up some amazing guests and we're excited to share some fantastic conversations with you this season A special thanks to our production team. This episode was edited by our producer, Preston Whitworth. Shalina Omar is our digital director, and Andre Tidwell is our production assistant. All of our music was composed by David Mueller. I'm the executive producer and host, Sandy Sear. This show is a listener-supported project of the Philanthropy Journal. You can donate, find show notes, and access previous episodes at philanthropyjournal.org. And don't forget, if you can, plant a tree, support your local library, and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.